Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdell. In the late 2010s, I was frustrated because I felt like there wasn't enough capital going to climate tech companies and startups, and a lot of the founders were just just talking to um, you know, generalist investors who didn't understand their space, didn't believe in it, didn't didn't know the market. So I felt like I had a good network of you know founders, executives, operators who wanted to back the next generation. So we founded Climate Avengers initially as a syndicate, with syndicate being that you know we would find the deals, write up an investment memo, do the due diligence, and then present it to the syndicate, and they would decide you know deal by deal how much they wanted to put in. Kyle, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you back. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Really appreciate uh, all the great content you've been putting out and happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm excited to dive right in. I see you as someone who has a lot of knowledge about what's happening in renewable energy and especially solar and especially in the U.S. Uh, what are you seeing in the market and what has 2022 looked like? I feel like it's been a banner year in some respects, but curious to hear from you. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think that we're really starting to see the fruit of the elections that we made during the, the obviously the previous administration there was some concerns about what the future looked like we had um, the investment tax credit stepping down and uh, going away for residential and so we were all kind of planning for you know a slowdown of that market and now we have the IRA inflation reduction act has been passed and we have long-term certainty for investors and for businesses and startups that we've got, you know, ten years of great uh, support. We've got a much broader support than just, you know, renewable tax credits. We've got electrification incentives for heat pumps and EVs, and um, just a, a whole perspective on a lot of different technologies that need to be scaled up and great support. So, really excited to be to be seeing that, and I think we're just seeing um, kind of a wave of continued climate tech enthusiasm and startups. Um, you know, this was kind of something that I was I've been tracking over my career, and um, there was definitely a dip there. You know, post twenty ten, post kind of green tech one point and um, you know we saw it kind of emerge in late twenty nineteen as it got rebranded as climate tech, and I really wasn't sure with COVID happening where if it was going to continue, and uh, fortunately it has. So excited to see that. Yeah, it's an interesting moment where you know it's pretty rare that you get. The public sector supporting something, the private sector supporting something, consumer demand, corporate demand, and global catalysts. Like those are kind of five really powerful pillars that have all combined into one in especially this year. But as you said, kind of a lot of that momentum has started over the past three years. And that's really encouraging. I think I still, you know, see a lot of chatter sometimes places like Twitter out in the marketplace, people kind of chirp renewable energy folks that have vested interest in fossil fuels or something else. And they say, oh, you know, like this is something that requires a lot of government incentives for people to adopt it. So how do you think about kind of that charge? And obviously, public spending and tax incentives are an important way to scale a technology. But when people suggest that, like, that's the only reason, for instance, that this stuff is really taking off, like, what would you say to those folks? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. I really view it as accelerating the inevitable. You know, we have these technologies that are just clearly better. EVs are clearly better than ICE. Solar is clearly, I think, one of the best energy technologies. We know it's not 24-7. We'll we'll do things to address that. And But you have cost curves and you have adoption challenges and you have uh, the need for, you know, people to be incentivized. And so 
I really just view it as every wave of incentives and government support has accelerated, you know, the inevitable. And so, you know, in solar, this goes back to one of the earliest markets, even before my time was Japan. There was a huge push in like the early 2000s, maybe even late 90s around um, building a lot of solar. And that was, you know, when solar was extremely expensive. After that, Germany put in place a lot of incentives, uh, at, you know, for both mostly utility scale, but just a real demand feed and tariff market. You had the Ontario Canada feed and tariff market in the 2010s, and then you've had you know the investment tax credit in the U.S. since I believe it was 2006 was the original, and then renewed actually under uh, Bush in, in 08 and um, had long term support since then. So, you know, these just provide this long term support that it says, hey. We know these things are good, right? We know that clean energy is good. We we see the benefits and we want to help accelerate it to bring down the cost curve. And when you look at how much we've accelerated down that cost curve, it's really amazing and quite encouraging on where we're headed. And what are some of the various factors that, like what are the levers that have changed the price of solar over time? Like I imagine a big one is obviously the efficiency of the photovoltaic cells themselves. I think material input costs to the rest of the solar panel can be important. But for folks listening in, like we hear that often that you know solar and wind power have gotten so much better and cheaper over the last 20 years. Like what are the things that have actually changed to make that happen? You know, historically, when you think about technology cost curves, the one that it, people think about is, is Moore's law, all right? So semiconductors, as manufacturing goes up, they get cheaper and- um, More powerful. Just, yeah, more powerful. And we've just seen that consistently, right? Uh, in solar, it's Swanson's law. So Dick Swanson, I believe, was one of the, the founders of, uh, of SunPower. And you know, he kind of observed this trend that as we you know double and triple capacity and every time there's, there's a coherent or there's a- corresponding uh, reduction, clear reduction. And so that just uh, continues. So, you know, that's really around the cost of manufacturing solar panels. So you can look at those charts and it's literally like, you know, it goes from like $176 a watt to like 15 cents a watt. And it's just kind of ridiculous. The thing that's been harder, honestly, has been all of the soft costs, permitting, interconnection, sales, marketing, design, all of those things have been harder to bring down. It's it's one of the reasons that places like Australia actually have like 30% plus rooftop penetration. Um, there's no interconnection. There's no permitting. A lot of times, a lot of these systems I've heard, they don't even have monitoring on them. They just install panels and inverters and it's a really simple system and they just go, yeah, my bills went down. And so, you know, that's not going to change in the US anytime soon, but I do think you know, we are seeing the need for streamlined processes. So you've got, mm-hmm. I believe it was NREL, I think, and maybe some other organizations that developed this solar app, which is an online permitting tool being adopted by cities to help streamline this. And I think that's being adopted by some cities in California and throughout the rest of the country. And that has an opportunity to really speed things up because, you know, in a rooftop, you're seeing even relatively simple residential projects taking three to four months uh, post-contract to get installed. And that just slows everything down. So um, yeah, there's a lot of opportunities still on soft costs to reduce the timeline and the the process. Yeah. And for folks listening who might be a little bit less familiar with kind of conversation around permitting or concept like interconnection, like how would you distill that for folks? Like why is it harder in the U.S.? I mean, you could could take a 60 second answer or 60 minute answer, but just maybe to give people a summary. 
Yeah, I mean, general regulation, I would say just, uh, you know, I remember my one of my first trips to a developing nation, and I was working at a utility scale solar developer. And I'd been, you know, in the US driving around looking at substations and looking at how they're laid out and the transformers and the distribution lines coming in and out. And then I went, you know, to another country, and I saw a pole with 100 wires coming off of it. And I was like, oh, this is the local substation. <laughs> so I think that, uh, you know, a lot of stuff is just kind of more planned out, more regulated, more controlled here. And, you know, it's because we build infrastructure very intently the last, you know, 50 to 100 years and um, to be paid for well. I think that, you know, that's not the true in every developing country, but I think we need to just continue to develop standards whereby people go you know, okay, great. This is going to be on every house. It's going to be on every building. You know, it's one of the reasons I do appreciate living in California. We've got that now where every new home and every new commercial roof, um, every new home has to have solar and every new commercial roof has to have solar and storage. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So this is a major change in the industry and it's going to drive a ton of adoption. And once an owner of a building or a home identifies that this is their competition, if they ever want to sell their building, they're going to go, oh, this is the new granite countertops. This is the new yeah. you know, XYZ. I've got to have this. And so they're going to add it on. Yeah, that's a nice tie. I like the analogy you make to kind of also thinking about the home as a whole. It's like a parallel I see is definitely like in HVAC systems too. It's like this has already kind of happened with solar, but that's another area where it'll probably happen soon. Like people touring a home 10 years from now, I can imagine if there's a gas stove or a gas boiler, they're going to look at that and say, mm, yeah. you know, maybe we'll go with the property down the street that we looked at. There was literally a great tweet thread from Dr. Volts. I forget his actual name, but his handle's DR Volts. And uh, he, he was just talking about like, how do we give enough money or support to the right organizations that can change public sentiment around, you know, gas stoves and, and gas in the homes so that literally it's like their nose is crinkle and they may not even know why, right? Like gas is the new smoking, right? It's uh, that we need a lot more awareness around the health impacts, indoor air quality. Everyone's wondering why everybody's getting cancer. And it's like, well, you're standing over a cancer causing, you know, device for mm -hmm. an hour a day or whatever, half hour a day, just breathing in, you know, straight uh, carcinogenic uh, fumes. So yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's interesting how, I don't know where it came from, but maybe it's some sort of covert big gas lobby, but there is kind of like the reverse assumption sometimes, right? People are like, oh, it's so much like you have a little more control with a gas stove and stuff like that. And yeah. those small notions, whether positive or negative, definitely make a big impact. And back to the transmission and interconnection, I think like at the national level, I was also thinking about, you know, as you were speaking, like we've done a lot of really good stuff this year with the IRA, for instance, to incentivize kind of like the national and utility scale build out of renewable energy. But I was looking at stats this morning, and I think for Q3, there was actually a pretty marked slowdown in new capacity that was connected to the grid versus stuff that was delayed. And I think some of that is definitely kind of input costs and inflation, but I think you know, a big barrier also is kind of the next leg of the infrastructure build out that needs to happen, which is a lot more transmission to make sure we're like valorizing all the utility scale renewable energy. Well, is that something that you've kind of thought about as well and have perspective on? Yeah, I, you know, lived through this when I was at a utility scale solar developer in, in 2010 to, you know, to 2008 to 2011. And, you know, we were looking at where to develop projects trying to identify where they'd be hosting capacity and not a massive queue of existing projects. And so, you know, you had the large generator process and you had the small generator process. Small generator was up to 20 megawatts. 
And we just took a company-wide approach that we said, hey, we, you know, there's a fast track process with small generators. There's less competition. It's less, you know, it's smaller substations can handle it versus the big ones that everyone's targeting. Interesting. And so we totally went that route. And now, you know, solar and storage and hybrid plants have become so abundant that every ISO kind of large region in the country that manages the power grid has dozens of gigawatts of projects in queue. There's a big discussion around the need for a reform of that process, and I think that you know many are, are underway at the ISO level to figure out how do we, we reform it, because you'll literally have projects signaling queue, wanting to connect, and they can't actually determine their final costs until they know whatever what's going to happen with the projects in front of them and right. what upgrades they're going to pay for and trigger depends you know on the next projects and so i actually think that what's interesting is is what this means for the other side of the meter which is the easiest power plant to build today in my opinion is a virtual power plant because mm-hmm. you don't have any of these transmission constraints you don't have the interconnect queues you're just aggregating IoT connected devices into a virtual power plant that you can manage flexible loads. And we're just getting started on that, right? Like, it's been a lot of focus on smart thermostats. Some big businesses have been built around that. Yep. But we're just starting to do managed charging for EVs. We're just starting to do it for water heaters. You know, there's Ohm Connect out there building plug load mostly and thermostat VPPs. And I just think that there's a huge opportunity that. You know, VPPs maybe contribute probably less than 1% of the total kind of quote unquote load to a utility or around the country. And I think that's going to go through the roof where just throughout the whole day, you're just managing all these virtual assets up and down according to load. Interesting. Yeah, that's definitely an exciting future to think about. And I have mostly thought about it in terms of, as you said, like thermostats and Kind of like big EV batteries sitting in the garage, but I hadn't really even thought about, you know, other types of batteries that might be in homes too. And it is a powerful potential concept of, you know, you start with your rooftop solar, but then this is like the next logical step is you've got storage and then you start sharing that storage across a wide area. It's interesting to think about every home having four types of batteries, right? So they're going to have a battery in their EV. They potentially will also have a battery that's a stationary system on their wall. Yeah, power wall. And then they're going to have a water-based battery in their hot water heater. And they're also going to have the air-based battery, which is the air in their home, right? So if you pre-cool your home ahead of peak hours, right, that's a battery or you preheat it, you know. So then the one that I think is really interesting interplay is right now we're starting to see rising attachment rates of batteries to rooftop solar systems. And Certainly under uh, extreme climate and impact in environments or events, I should say, tornadoes, hurricanes, flooding, all kinds of things like that, people go, yeah, the ROI on a battery may not look that great depending on my TOU rate or whatever, but what's the ROI of having power for days on end when when the grid's down? It's, it's right. extreme. Wildfires high. in California. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but the question then becomes in five years from now, when vehicle to home and vehicle to grid is uh, technology is much more prevalent, will you still want a stationary battery on your wall? Because right now you're talking about 13 kilowatt hours for 15 to $20,000 installed when you have a hundred kilowatt hours in your vehicle and it also gets you to and from work. So I'm really fascinated to see how those trends play out and whether or not your vehicle becomes just your standard battery for your home or the fact that it may not always be at home. You actually do also want another battery. 
Right. Well, also knowing the way a lot of Americans like to live, you know, not just four batteries, but five or six, depending on how many cars you have. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that's also an interesting, we talked earlier about, you know, one critique that folks have of renewable energy sometimes, like it seems like it needs a lot of government subsidies to scale. I think people have a critique about, you know, what's the usefulness of an EV in its totality if you're pumping like a lot of important minerals and metals to it. I think this is a great answer to it is like, this is actually can become a part of the power grid too. It's not just a way to get people from point A to point B and to replace gas miles. I agree with you. And there is a legitimate concern around how much minerals we have to mine in order to, you know, even hit the demand, right? I mean, within the last year, you had Elon saying, like, if you start a lithium processing business, you're just going to be pumping out cash hand over fist, right? So you're seeing a lot more of those operations get started. And you're seeing the great businesses that get started around recycling uh, the old batteries. I think that's going to be a massive industry. And then you're going to need a lot more diversity of materials, right? So you're seeing originally we had a big push on lithium ion, and then now we're seeing a lot more LFP, lithium iron, phosphate uh, battery technologies coming that are you know, maybe lower cost, less runaway, less prone to runaway thermal events. Um, and then I just think there's going to be a long list of additional materials. You know, one of the companies that we backed, Enzinc, is doing a, a zinc metal. Zinc air. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's an anode basically that can be dropped into any battery factory. So replace like twenty percent of a battery factory, and it'll basically be the anode portion. It's highly recyclable. It's non toxic. They're targeting the lead acid market, which is very common for micro mobility uses in developing nations like tuk tuks and e bikes, things like that. Got it. And you know, yeah, we're gonna need a lot of solutions like that. Yeah, I mean, there's also been a lot of good kind of news in that area or good funding rounds in that area this year form energy is one that came to mind they do like the iron air batteries which are really cool it's like rusting and de-rusting to store and discharge energy and i think especially for utility scale storage like the opportunity to not use additional lithium for that when you need the lithium for an ev for instance that's really exciting Mm -hmm. yeah i agree yeah form's really interesting because they're going after this long duration right and so Mm -hmm. I think their pilot project was like one megawatt, but 150 megawatt hours. So they can just output for 150 straight. So that's really fascinating. A lot of people are talking about hydrogen as long-term right. storage. I think you know we're very early still in the long-term storage race. Right. Yeah. I think it's something like, I don't know the exact stat, but certainly more than half of all long-term storage at the utility scale is still pumped hydrogen in the US, which there's nothing wrong with that, obviously. Pumped hydro. Hydro. Yeah, piped hydro, sorry. Good correction, which, you know, nothing wrong with that. Good old-fashioned gravity, but there aren't really any other solutions that are available at that scale yet. And yeah, hydrogen's an interesting one. I think quite early on in that one can also get pretty controversial. From what I understand, like, the round-trip energy efficiency right now is pretty low, but maybe that's something that, you know, I'm sure lots of people are working on. Yeah, I remember looking at it a few years ago, kind of when you know there was some debate over this because it was still earlier in the EV adoption cycle and people were still heavily debating whether or not EVs were going to make it or whether they should keep betting on hydrogen. And I don't know if it was Elon or somebody else was just kind of looking at that exactly that issue, which is the round-trip conversion efficiency. So you're talking about, I believe it's like a five-step kind of conversion. If you're talking about like long-term duration storage, so it was mm-hmm. you know, solar PV, convert to AC, and then use the AC to, I believe, run an electrolyzer, which creates the hydrogen, mm-hmm. split the water and air, and then store that, and then you know to convert it back to AC to move on the grid, 
And then from the grid, you got to get it into a battery. So you got to convert it back to DC. And you're talking about like all these different conversion cycles, all each having losses. And so it did seem, you know, very kind of inefficient at all those stages. But, you know, if you get the, the values there and everybody says there's a lot of industrial applications that hydrogen can take out the, um, the carbon and uh, clean up the process versus that, you know, fully electrifying can't do. Right. It does seem like there's a lot of opportunities to use it uh, in different ways, which is usually a good sign for, you know, a nascent industry. I think there's a big company out in Sweden that wants to build a steel manufacturing plant that's going to primarily use hydrogen in some processes that are normally pretty emissions intensive, as you said. And I think it's an interesting point, too, that there's a lot of existing infrastructure for it, right? Like people usually say that the fact that oil companies are kind of excited about hydrogen is a bad thing. And I get why folks don't trust them per se. But, you know, if they are interested in developing it to support, you know, emissions reduction goals, and they have a lot of the infrastructure that can also be an interesting opportunity. I think that the thing, you know, oil companies be, and gas companies being interested in, in hydrogen, part of that is just hydrogen is a gas. It runs through pipelines like oil, like oil and, and natural gas. So it's, it's very, um, it drops into their business model very easily. Right. And so I don't necessarily blame them for that because, you know, while a lot of them have, bought and invested in more renewable energy type companies they're often very you know bad at running them and have made some poor decisions uh you know one minor anecdote right and i won't name names but i had a colleague who had come from a large oil company that had a wind division that he was working on and they had a project you know signed ppa all the land's done permitting's done you know ready to hit and close financing and go It goes to the board and they go, whoa, 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 we don't want the market thinking we're a wind company when we're an oil company. And they literally just chose not to fund the project. So uh, strange. Yeah. How long ago was that, if you remember? That was like 2010. So it was, it was a while ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, now you see like changing. big companies like Schlumberger are like rebranding and like are trying to like emphasize that this is going to be a core piece of their business, clean, clean energy, that is. So, Yeah. Well, you alluded to it earlier, but you also do a lot of work on the investing side. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like and some of the companies that you're most excited about. Yeah, for sure. I uh, you know, had the good fortune of having a startup I was a part of Exit in 2011, and my wife and I chose to make some angel investments after that, and um, fortunately made some some good picks. Folsom Labs' is Helioscope tool and, and Utility API. Um, last year, Folsom Labs was acquired by Aurora, and Utility API recently announced a big raise. So great to see them doing well. But yeah, in the late 2010s, I was frustrated because I felt like there wasn't enough capital going to climate tech companies and startups. And a lot of the founders were just just talking to um, generalist investors who didn't understand their space, didn't believe in it, didn't (laughs) didn't know the market. So I felt like I had a good network of founders, executives, operators who wanted to back the next generation. So we founded Climate Avengers initially as a syndicate. With syndicate being that you know we would find the deals, write up an investment memo, do the due diligence, and then present it to the syndicate, and they would decide you know deal by deal how much they wanted to put in. So yeah, we did six investments in 2021: three seed, three Series A, and then this year the goal was to get the rolling fund off the ground. So that launched at the start of Q2, and now we have kind of a, a captive pool of funds that we're writing checks into companies, three to five checks a quarter. And then we'll take one of those usually or, or uh, you know, one deal per quarter and, and syndicate it out to the broader group. And so, yeah, that's Climate Avengers. It's been a lot of fun to work with so many founders and see what they're working on and be able to write them some checks. Fantastic. Yeah. What are some of the companies that folks listening in should know about and be excited about? So 
Aether Diamonds is a fascinating company. They're a direct air capture. They're taking direct air capture supply, uh, supplied CO2, and they are manufacturing the world's first carbon negative diamonds uh, using carbon taken out of the atmosphere. They just started scaling up, you know, mid to late last year, and they're taking off like a rocket. They've got some big plans. I think they just did their first. I don't know how you phrase it, but there was a, I think it's an esports championship event where their diamonds are kind of part of the championship ring, if you will. And I remember talking with Ryan, the CEO, and he was like, dude, we're going to the Super Bowl. Like, we're going to, like, <laughs> we're going to pull direct air capture CO2 out of the air around the Super Bowl and then put it into the rings for all the players. So yeah, that's like the wedding ring for anyone who's into yeah. climate tech. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So Drone Seed has been on a tear. They raised a massive Series A last year. From Social Capital and 776, Alexis Ohanian and mm-hmm. DBL. And they, you know, they acquired Silva Seed and they are continuing to grow now. They are, you know, planting trees six times more efficiently than humans climbing through the forest, faster after wildfires, more cost effectively. That's an important business given how good trees are at sequestering carbon. Um, right. Yeah. Very bullish on that. Yeah, we're excited actually to have them on the podcast in a couple more episodes. So nice. that'll be good. Yeah, that's awesome. Mutral, you know, providing a feed additive, nat- all natural feed additive that reduces significantly the methane from cow burps. They've also got a combo product with seaweed that's, you know, got a pathway to 80% reduction in methane. Obviously, methane from agriculture, well, from, you know, cattle operations around the globe is, is a massive contributor to climate change. Yada Energy, I mentioned that every rooftop commercial building, new building, new roof has to have solar and storage. Yada is a distributed energy technology that on a flat roof, you have, you know, ballasted solar panels tilted up at, you know, five or 10 degrees. This is just an energy storage block that just replaces the concrete that would have weighed down that system. And just right in, right in DC line, you just take the solar and plug it into the battery and then, and then connect them in series. And it's the simplest way to add energy storage to a solar project, which, you know, previous to that has been fairly complex. So very bullish on them. And then just briefly, some of the companies we've hit with the rolling fund this year, you know, I think I mentioned Enzinc. So that was one. Photon Marine making all electric outboard motors for commercial fleet boats. You know, given how the impact of, you know, fossil fuels and marine environments and the pollution that creates and the sound, the noise, I'm really excited about what they're doing. Nice. So that's a cool one. And there's a couple others that uh, I was going to mention. Yeah, the Blockable. So they're doing... Multifamily, five to eight story buildings with probably some retail on the ground floor, all electric, you know, housing built from a factory. So they're building their first factory in, in Sacramento. And, you know, we need a lot more housing in this country. We're, we're like 7 million units uh, a year short. And we need it to be, you know, very sustainable, dense, all electric, you know, solar on the roofs, all that stuff. So I think what they're doing is, is fascinating. And then uh, the last one I'll mention is dimensional energy. They are also buying CO2 pulled out of the atmosphere, and they are manufacturing sustainable aviation fuel just from that CO2. And so now you get a net zero aviation economy where you know their fuel being put into these airplanes is you know net zero because they're pulling it back out on the other side, and it also doesn't have any of the other pollution characteristics. Their, their fuel doesn't, so it doesn't have NOx or SOx or chemtrails or anything like that. So that's uh, those are some of the companies. Yeah, you're really hitting a lot of the different kind of sectors and verticals that I spend time thinking about. Energy, transportation, built environment. It's cool to see. And a quick plug for folks that are listening. I think a lot of people come to the Keep Cool ecosystem interested in finding jobs or 
working at good companies that are making a difference. I think all of those are certainly worthwhile to, to take a gander at what kind of positions they have open would all be great places to work. I'm curious kind of where you got deal flow from originally and how companies are coming to you now and maybe how that's changed. And then I'd also be interested to kind of hear you talk about the work as an investor, because I think people often glamorize this and have some misconceptions about the yeoman's work that it actually takes. So just hearing like what it actually, what the day-to-day of getting some of these deals done and doing the diligence looks like would be interesting. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting. Part of the reason I felt like I had a level of confidence that I could source good investments is just kind of my climate tech nerdism. I mean, fairly active, you know, on Twitter and just following kind of the trends. You know, Twitter's not a platform that everybody's active on, but I've just found it to be a place that um, movers and shakers are having an interesting discussion about what the future looks like. And so, I, you know, I think I was actually in a Slack community and had started the syndicate or kind of labeled that I was an angel investor when Aether Diamonds, our first deal, actually proactively reached out to me through that Slack community. And they just said, hey, we're raising, we'd love to talk to you. And I was like, great, and took a look and and loved the business model and the team and all that. You know, since then, I think there's definitely been some of that of just my own research, but you you start to build a network and um, put the name Climate Avengers out there. So, you know, there's a fair amount of lists online of people who invest and, you know, they name out their categories or their verticals. Mm -hmm. And so that's been helpful. Being, you know, our first deal was private on AngelList, so nobody really knew we existed. But after that, we opened it up so that investors and, and startups could find us. So on that AngelList page, we have a startup application that goes to an Airtable form. And so we've collected, you know, a lot of companies that have applied. And from that, I'll typically look at kind of the core um, data pieces that they're that they're sharing and kind of understand what stage they're in. And usually I look to kind of share that deal flow with other potential investors you know, our model is that I'm an operator in a startup, right? And so I also run this fund as a passion project. Um, but what that means is that I'm not doing the same level of diligence as a lead investor would typically do. We don't invest in pre-seed just because it's so early. I think the risk is a lot higher. And, you know, my LP base is primarily angels and high net worth individuals. And so I do want to have kind of a, you know, a higher level of security around their investments. And so we're kind of waiting past pre-seed, you know, they get some initial funding in, they get an MVP, maybe they have some initial customers. And then it's like, okay, what's the feedback? Is this working? Is this a real market? Do we want to help you throw some fuel on the fire and try to get to a sustainable level? So we always look for, you know, who's leading the round or if you're not there yet, who can we share this with to see if they're interested? And, you know, then I'll either get an investment memo from a due diligence memo from that lead investor, talk to them, and then go through the data room that's shared and, you know, look at the financials and look at um, the cap table and the business model and uh, everything else that they have in there and um, kind of talk through with the founders, you know, what that looks like. So it's definitely, you know, it's a lot of, it's a fair amount of, you know, just time outside of my day job when I'm just thinking about which startups I think are going to be successful. And, you know, the thing I find is it's generally the businesses that I can't stop thinking about that uh, are the ones that I'm most drawn to because, they just go and the more i think about it i just go yeah this is going to take off nice yeah i mean it's laudable because i kind of entered or even at the end of last year entering the year thought that this was something that i wanted to spend more time focusing on myself but as i've gone along i mean for one i realized i really like doing the content and the media but i also realized that you've got to carve out a ton of time for it if you want to do it if you want to do it well so in some ways i've almost like drawn back from it a little bit but i'm glad that there's folks like yourself out there and lots of other folks doing it (laughs) yep 
So zooming out a little bit here towards the end, what are some, you know, could be anything, what are some other things that have caught your attention in the broader world of climate tech? Could be policy, could be other legislation. What else is out there? You know, on the policy side, some things that I'm tracking pretty closely, the net metering 3.0 decision in California is coming uh, very soon, most likely shortly after the election. And California represents about 50% of the U.S. solar and storage market. And so the way that direction or that decision comes down is going to really you know, move the market quite a bit. There's two key pieces that are involved in that. One is the export rate. So you have uh, what is the grid paying uh, customers when they export power onto the grid from their home. Um, okay, got it. And the second one is fixed charges, right? So just the fact that you're connected to the grid and can pull power anytime you want to if your solar system is not producing yeah, that has a value. And what is that that fixed charge uh, cost just to be connected to the grid? So mm-hmm. if the current export rate is only two or three cents below the retail rate, which is not a big difference, but if you if that gets significantly dropped, which it looks like it will, that actually increases the value proposition for energy storage coupled with solar because now instead of exporting it to the grid, you're putting it in your battery and you're avoiding retail power later. I see what um, you're saying. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. That said, if the if the fixed charges come in very high, that will kill the day one savings on solar and storage. And so then a mm-hmm. lot of people who were going, you know, this doesn't really save me any money for 10 years or so, they're going to be much less you know, confident in going forward. So that's something I'm watching. I would say also electrification in general as a trend. You know, we got to electrify buildings, we got to electrify transport. Historically, electrification has, it's not really, it doesn't fit in the energy efficiency bucket because you're typically adding load, which is not the definition uh-huh. of energy efficiency. <laughs> but energy efficiency is one of the things that states and, and you know, utility commissions and things like that, they incentivize it heavily because you know, that's what we should do, right? We should burn less power and have to you know, be smart with the way we use our energy. But very progressive places like Sacramento Municipal Utility District, who has their own governing board, they redefine that electrification actually is efficiency. And they look at it from a climate perspective. They look at it from a first principles, you know, from uh, generation to consumption. And that change is starting to happen around the country. Uh, just in the last year, uh, a couple of years, California changed their rules that said, for the IOUs, they said, if there is a climate benefit to fuel switching, then you can incentivize it with ratepayer dollars. That was a like 30 plus year rule that had kind of stood that they couldn't do that. Because otherwise, you just have you know gas utilities fighting for electric customers and electric customers fighting for gas utilities, and it just doesn't work. So we need to value electrification as a society very highly. We talked about permitting and air conditioner reform. I think that's a big piece as well. So I'd say those are some of the bigger, broader kind of trends I'm tracking. Yeah, I like the, the second thread. I think it's easy to get caught up in fuel sources like the end-all be-all of the energy transition, but there's so much more that goes into it, even on like the demand side. like As you said, energy efficiency is super important. Like If you can cut the amount of energy that you need to heat your home by 20 or 30%, like that's significant. <laughs> yep. And I think, you know, as you alluded to, we're both pretty active members of kind of a climate tech folks on Twitter, and there's lots of great Slack groups. There's lots of good content out there. But what are some other mediums that you're excited about or ways that people can work together kind of even more closely to advance solutions or to get more people excited about working on these challenges? Yeah, I think, you know, how communities are organizing continues to evolve. My friend Nico Johnson, who runs Suncast Media, just put together a, a Discord community. He had a Slack community, which is great for communicating, but it's it's not always as effective at like working together. 
So his is called Resource Labs, I believe. So they're doing some interesting things there. I think, you know, overall, we need a lot more people working in this space. And so there's been a lot of good efforts to help just to help people transition into climate tech, even if they feel like they don't have, you know, understanding of the market or awareness of, you know, they have the skills that we all need in all these businesses. So, you know, things like Climate Draft, Climate People is a recruiter, uh, On Deck Climate Tech, Climate Track, I think it is. Great effort. Um, you know, the podcast, the communities like My Climate Journey um, and others, I think are really important. You know, and the other one, just in terms of everyone kind of working more harmoniously, um, there's kind of been a big push recently on, you know, get your money in a place where it's doing positive for climate, right? Right. And so whether that be neobanks like, you know, Aspiration or Atmos or whoever, you know, the fact of the matter is that most of the big banks are, have a pretty bad record of continuing to fund big fossil fuel infrastructure projects. And mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, nothing changes until a dollar moves and then the market responds. And, um, you know, the more that, you know, people in general can get their dollars invested in climate positive places that's going to be great. So you have, you know, Carbon Collective and Betterment uh, and Sphere coming out with retirement options that are saying, hey, you know, you don't want everything in like a, just a generic broad mutual fund. You want to make sure you're, you're funding climate positive companies. So I think that's important. Yeah, and it's a great challenge. And I, I love the guys at Carbon Collective and I'm, I'm using their product. But yeah, I mean, even I could be doing better. Like I'm still a Chase customer, still have a bank account, and credit card, and they're big financiers of new oil fields and stuff like that. So food for thought, even for me, <laughs> it's very hard to move your bank. I mean, I, I'm a Wells Fargo guy and I have been since college, probably just cause they had a bank, you know, in my union in the college for me, like their customer service and products have been phenomenal. And when you've got a new bank and you're like, I'm like, okay, but like, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if I need this product? You know, I, they're just new, like they're building everything from scratch. And so right. it is hard to move. You know, I've moved all my loans to credit unions, like clean energy credit unions doing great stuff on EV and solar loans. And uh, I, I think we need a lot more uh, things like that. Very cool. All right. Well, it's been fantastic. Thanks for being on, Kyle. It's been great. Where should folks look to get in touch with you on the fun side or just to follow your work in general? Yeah, I'd love to connect on Twitter at Kyle Cherick. LinkedIn as well is a good place. And then if you're interested in what we're doing on the venture investment side, check out AngelList and our syndicate, Climate Avengers, and the Rolling Fund under the same name. You know, like I said, we've got over 380 you know LPs right now in the syndicate and uh, a growing fund as well. And so we need all the capital that we can get. We're seeing more attractive companies than we can back, and our check sizes are still not as large as we'd like them to be. And so we really believe that we're building a diverse portfolio of climate-positive startups that are going to have a huge impact. And you know, I'll just, just kind of summarize you know, why I think venture is so important is that these venture dollars are so critical to catalyze these solutions to get across, right? Like venture investors take risk that almost no other category of investor is willing to take. And, you know, it's a long time down the risks uh, curve before, you know, project finance and everything else is willing to invest in a project uh, of a new technology, a company, provide big loans. So venture provides that opportunity for that risk. You know, we expect that some amount of the companies are just not going to make it. But we're, you know, with a portfolio approach, we have the opportunity to see, you know, huge exits that overall provide a very attractive return. So that's kind of my, my pitch for venture. Right on. Yeah, no, that's a good way to a good way to round it out. And yeah, I'm excited to keep up with the portfolio and break news on those companies in the future. And who knows, maybe even become LP 381 in the new year. We'll see. Love it. <laughs> Love it. That'd be awesome. 
All right. Thanks, Kyle. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.